0: Welcome to Digital Insider, a podcast series about the digitalization of retail. I am Bernardo Lindgruber, and together we'll meet with business leaders, thinkers, and academics to discuss how the business landscape is transforming. Our guest today is Zia Daniel-Wigder, Senior VP of Content at Insider Intelligence, Zia is an experienced professional in the e-commerce industry. And before Insider Intelligence, she led content and research teams working for companies like Forrester, Grocery Shop, and Shop Talk. Welcome, Zia.
1: Thanks for having me, Bernardo.
0: It's such a pleasure to have you with us. And, and just a quick comment before, I, I work at Vitex for a long time, and I really had the memory of you on a Vitex Day stage, you know, as a, I, I think at the time you were at Forrester. So it's, uh, I'm a bit nervous, you know, with this <laughs> conversation, but I'm sure it will go all right.
1: No worries. We'll put you at ease.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Uh, so to start the conversation, I guess, uh, to, and to know you a little better, I would like to ask you about your career and the professional path that brought you to where you are today to, to insider intelligence. So what is your background and, and how did you end up working in the digital commerce industry?
1: Sure. Absolutely. Um, so it's interesting. I actually came into digital commerce broadly after having followed, you know, the globalization of different digital initiatives. So for a while, I was looking at how different companies were expanding internationally and building web presences in international markets. When I joined Forrester, I became part of a team that looked. Uh, kind of exclusively at what was happening in e-commerce and retail more broadly. So at that point, I pivoted, and this was you know 15 years ago. Uh, at this point, to focusing on the internationalization of e-commerce, and so I started looking at markets like China, which was at that point a relatively nascent digital market. Mm-hmm. Started looking at markets like Brazil, where I got to know you know the likes of the the Vtex team. Um, looked at you know what was happening in Europe and all sorts of markets outside of the US. Then over time, increasingly it became, huh, focused on what was happening here in the US as well. I had joined ShopTalk in 2015, which was uh, a startup in the events space that was focused on innovation and retail and e-commerce. Right. So I joined them as their chief global content officer, building the agenda, which was about you know 100 different sessions, 300 plus different speakers. Catalog, excuse me, cataloging kind of everything that was happening in retail innovation, whether that was online or in stores. We built up that event to you know over 8,500 people, and then kind of took that expertise and you know B2B content to Insider Intelligence, which I joined just about a year ago at this point. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a minute.
0: Okay, amazing. And I just forgot to mention as well that you're a teacher at the ACOM, right? Institute. Yeah, I am.
1: So I'll be headed to Brazil in a couple of weeks to to teach at that.
0: Amazing, amazing. So can you tell a bit more about uh, Insider Intelligence specifically? Like what what does the company do? I've heard as well that there was a merge recently. That's where you came about.
1: So yes, we are a merged organization. We are comprised of eMarketer, which is quite well known in the commerce space for our research, as well as Business Insider Intelligence. And that was really the the research wing for Business Insider, now known as Insider. So we're all part of that broader organization. My team is about 125 people or so. It's a combination of analysts and forecasters and daily briefings, writers. I have a, a video and podcast team Uh, as well as different folks that edit all of the the different research that we produce. So in aggregate, what we offer as an organization are really sort of unparalleled insights into what's happening uh, in digital trends around the world. So we are a syndicated research organization. We don't do advisory or consulting or write white papers. We have extensive forecasts, for example, that look at everything from you know how big e-commerce is in different categories and different markets around the world to you know how many TikTok users there will be in different markets to you know yeah. what do we project Kroger's or Instacart's uh, or Netflix uh, revenues to be over the next five years. So we've got this fantastic forecasting team. We have a team of researchers, um, they you know, speak 10 different languages all together. They scan wow. the world every day to see what research is being published because we believe very firmly that we should not only rely on our own data, but that there's a ton of great information that's being produced every day. And so they'll uh, collect the information, they will publish a chart with that information, obviously to credit to the original source. But our clients then have access to everything from information that might be coming out of the the UK government to a great study published by a, a large tech company. And we get a lot of the data provided to us on a proprietary basis as well. So we have lots of information that's given exclusively to insider intelligence that we, again, make available to our clients. So on top of those forecasts and that third-party wow. data, we have a whole you know large team of analysts that do everything from the daily briefings analyzing the news to research reports that dive in depth on topics. Um you know, and again in e-commerce ranging from something like sustainability to you know market sizing to the rise of retail media networks.
0: Hmm. Amazing. Wow, that's that's a lot. <laughs>
1: it is. That's they're a lot. very busy. Yeah.
0: yeah, I can say that. <laughs> and uh, I, I guess. To to put it more uh, more practically, right to, to our audience, um, how how are companies impacted by your research? You know what what is the value that these in depth researches that you do uh, to businesses, especially in the e commerce sector.
1: Yep, absolutely. So um, a couple of things that our research helps with is you know helping companies figure out how they should be spending money and then how they will make money as well. Mm. So for example, we help them figure out how they should uh, allocate their you know, their digital ad spending across different platforms. You know, What is it like to work with different uh, platforms out there? What can they expect to see as a result? How are other companies shifting their budget? Um, for something like you know, e-commerce, we would look again at you know, which categories are growing the fastest. What does the competition look like? So how quickly are they growing? Where are new opportunities emerging? So we'll be doing, you know, for example, with the retail media networks, we'll be looking at the build out of those across different retailers later this year and what brands can expect working together with different ones. So we help them in a variety of different ways. Everything from, is this an understanding market share of competitors to understanding um, how they should be allocating their funds um, for digital marketing or free commerce, for example. Mm.
0: Yeah, got it. One thing, one thing that always struck me when I think about these research teams, you know, a lot of researchers and analysts together is that you usually start with, with an assumption, actually, right? A premise, that's something that you want to investigate. So I, I'm really curious to know if, like, if you have any, any story of, you know, a, a, an unexpected result that a research showed, like one that went like, completely the other way of everyone was guessing, something like that.
1: Yeah, um, definitely. And I'm going to use one example, actually, from the forecast team mm. that I thought was sort of interesting. And, you know, to your point, we'll often go in with a hypothesis to our research. And, you know, similarly, when we go to build forecasts, they use, you know, hundreds of different sources. And it's actually a very in-depth uh, process that they go through of debating uh, all the information that's out there and talking through, all you know, all the different assumptions and, when we were doing our research on what's happening in China, uh, when it came to e-commerce in particular, everyone knew that it was growing quickly, right? We've all heard about you know Alibaba and JD and some of the other you know newer players that emerged in this space. And as we got into the forecasting uh, of the market, it became clear that China was actually going to be the first market in the world. And not only is it the largest market out there, but its first one where over half of all transactions are taking place online. So there's more happening in e-commerce. There are more uh, dollars or you know, yuan going mm-hmm. into e-commerce than there are to traditional retail, uh, which was absolutely phenomenal as a mm-hmm. finding because we've never seen that anywhere. You know, again, you hear about the UK where you are being very advanced or the US being uh, advanced. I don't think most people realize just how far ahead China was and that they had reached this critical inflection point. And there are a lot of reasons for that. One of which is that there wasn't the established traditional uh, retail landscape in China. There weren't the large number of nationwide retailers like we see in the US or Latin America or or Europe. So that meant that e-commerce was able to, to take off given that they didn't have that existing traditional retail base. But even with that dynamic, it was absolutely phenomenal to realize that they, as I said, it hit this point and that we've seen not only this market absolutely surge in terms of just the sheer volume of e-commerce, but that it outpaced traditional retail so quickly.
0: Wow. Wow. That's phenomenal. So let's shifting a little bit the focus um, on the previous conversation we had. You, you, you mentioned a, a focus, a recent focus on ethical commerce and sustainability which is like, of course, a very, very relevant topic. And, and it's now apparently becoming more and more trendy, which can be good, right? Should be. Uh, and, and of course, you know, companies cannot ignore the impact of their operations anymore. No, this, this, there is a public scrutiny about you know, practices and the operations and, and so on. So what are the key areas where companies have to look at to improve in this ethics and sustainability front from a digital commerce standpoint?
1: Yep. No, absolutely. Um, and, you know, to your point, sustainability is not just a single, you know, uh, uh, a no. single area. And companies have kind of moved away from, okay, we're going to do a single thing and that's going to uh, be our initiative in this area to, you know, it's spanning a lot of different, uh, different areas and there can be a lot of different approaches. So just sort of uh, um, go through a handful here. Um okay. Thinking about the broad, you know, the broad spectrum of retail out there, there is, um, you know, carbon footprint reduction. What can you do to reduce your overall carbon uh, footprint? There is the shift to, you know, reusable and recyclable containers, um, mm-hmm. with a lot of different companies, particularly like in the CPG space, pushing forward in this uh, this particular area. Um, there are reusable and sustainably sourced materials. So making sure that your supply chain is sustainable. Um, you know, that ties in with the you know, the carbon footprint reduction. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's green business certification. Um, there are entire new business models that are being developed to make businesses more sustainable, whether that is, you know, re-commerce, you know, um, resale of products or rental models. Um, different ways that companies are tackling this. Returns is another one, like making sure that those returns don't all end up in a landfill. So a spectrum of different ways that companies are starting to tackle this.
0: Mm, yeah, and it's interesting that you you went from products-related ones to operational-related ones, right? And in the end, I guess there's also the, the, the impact for the consumer, right? Which is more and more looking for companies that are responsible for what they produce, right? And, and, and their impact.
1: Yeah, and what's interesting there is that really has become a global phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Um, that some of these um, these trends that might have you know started in a single market before you know partially through social media that certainly had a, had a big impact, but mm-hmm. you see this everywhere from you know consumers in you know Brazil and Latin America to you know China to Europe to the U.S. are pushing brands on these uh, mm-hmm. issues and. It's interesting, you know, some of the surveys are indicating that in markets like China, you know, you're seeing particularly high focus on this. We tend to hear a lot about Europe, and Europe certainly is very advanced in terms of what their um, brands and retailers there are doing and the initiatives they've launched. But in terms of concerns, you know, China was really at the forefront when it came, for example, to like food safety. Mm. Um, we saw, you know, blockchain being deployed there relatively early on to uh, ensure that consumers were comfortable with the origin of their food. Um, we've seen them, you know, pushing a number of the big players to become more sustainable. So mm. this uh, this movement is very much of a global movement. It's coming from consumers, but it's also increasingly coming from employees, right? Mm-hmm. That's one of the big shifts that we've seen is oh. that power moving away from not being just with the buyers of your products, but within your own organizations as well. So you're Mm -hmm. seeing employees pushing uh, their employers to do the right things, not just in sustainability, but in terms of how they're treating uh, the employees at that organization, what their rights are. So given how tight the job market is right now, particularly Mm -hmm. for those with digital skills, employers are having to pay attention uh, to this. They're having to listen to their employees and they're being pushed to do things which, you know, they might not otherwise, right? If they were mm-hmm. um, simply acting on their own, they might not see the same urgency with um, that they would if they've got, you know, tens of thousands of employees, you know, pushing them to do something.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and this discussion also with the post-pandemic uh, shifts of, you know, focus from employees, the relationship of employee hiring processes and companies, I think this potentially can be also a big topic, right, to, to be addressed.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think, you know, the pandemic brought with it, um, you know, a few changes, you know, the, the digital one and the e-commerce one is perhaps the most, you know, obvious to those yeah. of us here, that sudden shift to e-commerce that we saw when the pandemic hit. But also things like the focus on DEI, uh, diversity, equity and inclusion became mm-hmm really critical for organizations, particularly coming out of you know, the Black Lives Matter movement and companies tackling that, again, from a variety of different angles, like sustainability. It's not one single thing that companies are doing, but realizing that it's a whole you know spectrum of different initiatives that they need to be thinking about. And mm-hmm. so you saw brands early on like Fenty uh, came out with a um, 40 different shades of foundation which at the time was really groundbreaking and you know to date there'd maybe been 10 different uh, shades available and they were very limited in scope but making your selection available to you know a whole wide range of different skin tones uh, being much more inclusive than what we've seen before was something that was then quickly echoed by other um you know other beauty brands and so mm-hmm. 40 became almost like a new standard so we saw that that big uh, push. We saw the 15% pledge in the U.S., which is calling for uh, retailers to have you know, 15% of their brands from Black-owned businesses to represent the 15% of the, the U.S. population that's Black. Mm-hmm. Seeing companies like Sephora uh, taking steps in, in that direction and uh, moving to be much more inclu- excuse me inclusive in terms of their suppliers, I think you're going to see more like this, you're going to see more movement in that mm. direction. So companies are becoming not just more inclusive with their own hiring, but in terms of making sure that the products that they provide to the market are uh, inclusive, not just in terms of, you know, being you know relevant to a wide range, like the Fenty example I gave, mm-hmm. but also that they're supporting businesses, um, with founders from a variety of different backgrounds
0: got it got it so let's say we have a couple of listeners here who you know are now beaten and they want to pursue this more technical sustainable operation uh how can we help them measure their advancements you know i I guess this is one of the key things to be successful you know pursuing this so which are which metrics should should they look after to don't to measure their
1: yeah, I think as I was talking about before, there are a lot of different ways to look at um, at sustainability. So I think the first thing they need to do is to really clarify where they want to play. You know, do they want to play in donations, right? There's some companies that say they'll donate a certain percentage of profits to at different causes? Do they wanna play with their, you know, the business model? Do they wanna you know, add, for example, a resale, you know, pre-owned component to the business? Do they wanna focus on the carbon footprint? Do they wanna focus on the supply chain? Um, you know, if we go back to, you know, to Nike, which I just mentioned, if you look at what they're doing in sustainability on their website, it's very clear. They have sort of, you know, four different areas that they specifically call out. They have materials, they have climate, they have circularity, and they have Nike refurbished. So that has to do with, again, the supply chain, um, climate change, recycling, and then selling uh, pre-owned goods. So you think about, okay, what are the areas we're gonna play in? They've made those their top four. Doesn't mean that's gonna be right for everyone. And then you assess how you're doing in each of those areas. I think it's important to benchmark yourself against what others are doing, uh, as well as setting your own goals Um, so before you do anything as a a brand you need to outline what are your specific pillars going to be what are going to be the areas you want to focus on because you can't boil the ocean uh, when Mm -hmm. it comes to this you need to be really clear and dedicated to what you're doing and then you need to assign yourself specific goals around those areas you can't just you know talk about you know what you're uh, that you're going to be a sustainable company and environmentally friendly Um, we've moved beyond that (music)
0: are there markets where the development of sustainable operations is more advanced, you know, uh, countries, regions, uh, something like that? And where do we find the the largest investments today in this, in this front?
1: Sure. So I would say that still we see a lot of innovation coming out of Europe um, in this Mm -hmm. particular area. They have tended to be ahead of the curve traditionally when it comes um, to sustainability, uh, when it comes to, you know, both governments and commercial organizations tackling this. Um, I think the rest of the world in some ways has played catch up. So um, the interest in the U.S. and in China has maybe been a more recent phenomenon than what we've seen in Europe. So I would say that you continue to some, see some of those more innovative initiatives over there. That being said, you know, as we talked about before, all of these are increasingly global phenomena. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're now seeing some great leadership coming out of China in certain areas, uh certainly coming out of the US as well. The whole clean tech space has taken off. Um, you know, you're going to see a lot of investment in you know, renewable energy uh, mm-hmm. uh, over the next few years. So I think there's going to be more uh more global interest in this topic. But if you had to isolate one region, as I said, that's kind of you know been at the forefront for quite a while, that's been Europe.
0: Got it. Got it. Good. So picking up on this on this last question, um, would you say that the level of sustainability of a geographical region, let's say Europe, for example, corresponds to its digital maturity? Is there a correlation or is it a big stretch?
1: <laughs> I, uh, it's funny. I saw that uh, that question uh, when we were talking before about uh-huh. sort of the list of things that we've discussed and I was thinking about it. And I'm not sure that they're necessarily... Is um, hmm. I think there probably is some, but I think there's Good. certainly exceptions out there. I think there are um, markets that have been at the you know the forefront of sustainability. Uh, you look at, for example, some of the initiatives that have come out of a, you know a place like Germany, for example, which within Europe is not the most digitally advanced. You know that hmm. would be the UK of you know the big hmm. markets, or you know coming out of the Nordics, for example. There's been a lot of innovation there and they aren't necessarily the most digitally advanced. They're digitally advanced, certainly, but mm-hmm. they're not at the tipping point of a China, right? Where half mm-hmm. of all of your purchases are going to be uh, online or at the level of uh, omni-channel integration that you've seen in, uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you're seeing tremendous innovation in the, you know, in the sustainability world. And so the answer is probably some correlation, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they go hand in hand.
0: Yeah, no, fair, fair, it makes sense. I guess one, one methodological question here is, um, and to this point, right, how do we measure the digital maturity of, of you know, a region, a country? Uh, what, what sets apart, for example, Germany from, from the Nordics, from China? You mentioned the, the amount of online orders, that's something that, you know, China has been pushing a lot, but is there more to it? How, how, what, al- what else is there to, to, to look at?
1: Yeah, uh, definitely. So, you know, uh, digital maturity spans a lot of different areas. So if you mm-hmm. look, for example, you know, the digital infrastructure from a technology perspective, you've got places like South Korea that are incredibly well connected, right? Mm-hmm. Um, higher broadband connectivity than any other market in the world. You know, these massive, for example, gaming communities that started very mm-hmm. early on because of um that you know intense connectivity that was available there so that's one component of it um, then you see other markets that are really innovative when it comes to mobile services right because they were mobile first um, you in this case you're seeing a lot of the you know, sort of the so-called emerging markets that have led china is clearly one of those mobile first markets so was very innovative early on we've seen quite a lot of innovation in some of the other mobile first markets when it comes to, you know, for example, financial services, whether that's in Latin America or some of the you know, markets in Africa or you know, India is a prime one, another one where you've seen a ton of innovation in this space. So while they may not have the broadband connectivity levels of the South Korea, what they've been able to do through mobile devices um, I think is absolutely groundbreaking and you know have led to a lot of innovation in that space that in a market like the you know the u s perhaps were a little bit behind compared to mm-hmm. some other countries in that area
0: mm-hmm. amazing yeah amazing uh, so still on this uh, digital maturity topic, but now moving you know we we were talking about regions countries and 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 that and now i would like to talk about companies right so when we we mentioned the digital maturity how to assess a digital maturity of a region you mentioned things like um the access to internet you know like the things there are more like public policy you know general general things but when we look to brands how do we assess the digital maturity
1: yeah it's a good uh, a good question and i think um when we look at Um, some of the brands that are, I won't say they're late to the game. I will say that they Mm -hmm. are um, currently more involved in that digital transformation than they were just a few years ago. And here I'm thinking maybe, you know, CPG, for example, or FMCG for, you know, those of you in Europe. Um, And here you've seen, you know, a big shift toward e-commerce. And for most of them, e-commerce has really been about their channel partnership. So You know, those relationships that they have with, you know, a Walmart or an Amazon or a Kroger and really optimizing those channels. So I think um, one benchmark of maturity is how well developed that e-commerce component of their business is. Um, What is that team doing? How sophisticated are they? And then another axis there, of course, is their own direct model, and we've seen direct takeoff substantially in sectors like, you know, apparel. It's long been established with businesses um, getting a greater and greater percentage of their revenues from direct sales, with you know, high margins and uh, complete control of the experience. I think CPG is still figuring that that piece out. They're trying to figure out what can they do uh, um, through a direct model. So I think that's another area again to kind of you know to benchmark against. Not necessarily in terms of how large it is, but how well developed it is. Like you know how well thought out is it? Where is their strategy in that particular area? What are they actually doing with it? I think that's you know that's one way to benchmark what um, how sophisticated some of these brands that are newer. To digital sales are today.
0: So talking about trends, uh, I wanted to go very briefly on uh, one another one that that's arise on the Asia Pacific region. I guess potentially China, uh, and it's it's kind of new, you know, for, for us, which is live shopping. And uh, in Asia, as I said, you know, it started there. It's almost a commodity, but in the US, in LATAM and Europe, it's still a novelty, and the, ad- the adoption curve is growing steeply right now. So, what are what are the trends in this front, and, and why is it becoming so important?
1: Yep, no, absolutely. So, um, to your point, this is one that was effectively born in China, and what's remarkable is it's actually only about five years old uh, in China at this point. Oh, fact. really? <laughs> um, I did, actually did a, a webinar in May of this year together with Alibaba to celebrate their five year anniversary of Taobao Live. So they only launched it back in 2016. So it's grown to a 300 billion dollar market over the course of just a few years, which is phenomenal. And again, you know, we talked before about some of the unique things about China. It's not likely to take off in that in you know in that same way or at that same level in the U.S. and Europe. That being said, it certainly has started to catch on, and we've seen brands kind of going about it in different Mm -hmm. ways. So. Um, some of them are going it alone, so someone like a Nordstrom has launched their own shopping channel. Um, many of them are partnering with big social networks, so in places like uh, Facebook or TikTok, um, you know, Instagram, others, you know, they're um, they're partnering with them because these social platforms already have such massive audiences. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, a natural place to turn. Uh, others are working with new mobile apps that are focused on live streams, So one's like uh, Network, for example, which is an L.A.-based company that's enabling brands to you know, offer live stream shopping experiences. Um, Amazon, of course, has its own offering uh, mm-hmm. in this space. So, again, there's no one approach that brands are taking. They're sort of trying a bunch of different approaches. And it's nascent. It definitely is nascent in the U.S. and I would say even more so in Europe right now. Yeah. So, uh, whereas there are quite a number of brands here that have really, you know, done something. Walmart's one example that's done a lot with, um, with TikTok to date. And then just a couple of days ago, they did another initiative across different platforms. Um, in Europe, you're, you know, you've seen again, some early tests, uh, with some like AliExpress, you know, some brands partnering together with them, mm-hmm. but, I think you're going to see a lot more attention being paid to this space and brands getting better at it right mm-hmm. um yeah. still relatively new to us uh, yeah. here in the US we had you know QVC and HSN and uh the home you know shopping networks and this is kind of the next iteration of that but it's also it's a much younger demographic than what we traditionally uh, saw with those shopping shows. So it's evolving in a new way and constantly changing. So I think it'll be a really exciting one to look at over the next few years. There are a couple different benefits to it, actually. One is um, your conversion rates tend to be quite high with live Mm -hmm. shopping. So if people are tuning in, it means that they're genuinely interested in your your product. Um, And also that Immersive nature of the content, and your ability to you know see how you again apply a foundation, or you know what a um, particularly uh, sorry a particular item of clothing looks like when paired with another, um, means that consumers have a you know a better sense of what they're buying. It also means lower return rates overall yeah. than what you typically see with e-commerce because yeah. again you know let's say you're buying a, a complex consumer electronic, you can uh, see how how it functions, get a sense of it beforehand. Um, You're thinking about doing some sort of, you know, home improvement. You can see how you actually, you know, work on that project. So a lot that you can do with live stream shopping that you can't necessarily do through traditional e-commerce.
0: Got it. Got it. So I always close with the same question, um, which is from your experience, what advice would you give to make digital transformation a smoother process for companies that are going through it right now?
1: Goodness. Um, I could talk for an hour on that one question alone. Um, I
0: would love to have one more hour. Yeah, 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 absolutely.
1: (laughs) Um, You know, the one piece of advice is probably the same thing that we've been talking about before when it comes to, you know, everything from, you know, sustainability to DEI, which is that you need to decide where you're going to I wouldn't say place your bets because it's not a bet. Where What areas you need to prioritize? What are you going to get to be really good at? You're going to have a you know, hundred different options put in front of you. How do you prioritize you know, which ones you really want to invest in? And that's true both on the operational front as well as on the uh, customer experience front. So mm-hmm. you're not going to be awesome at everything. <laughs> let's say you know, you've got all the different um, digital tools and features you can potentially launch, get a really good sense of what your customers are looking for and which ones you want to prioritize. What are the, you know, what do your shoppers care about um, and where are you going to get that biggest bang for your buck? Because you're not going to be able to do it all. And again, you know, lean in heavily into those key areas. So almost developing that matrix uh, of where you want to, invest in what the things are that you're going to do incredibly well and stick to those and start hiring early we've talked a bunch about that but it is you know it's a a tight job market it's going to take you some time to find the right people so get going early when you know that you're going to want to do something so that you've got the right team in place
0: that was a perfect summarization Thank you very much, Zia. Thank you,
1: Bernardo. Thank you, Alessandro. Appreciate it. Talk bye to bye. you guys later.
0: Thank you for listening to Digital Insider, a podcast by Vitex. Thank you to our guest, Zia daniel Whitker, and to our host, Bernardo Lengruber. Keep listening to Digital Insider on your favorite streaming platforms and on our website, digitalinsider.com.